Well, folks, the dust has settled on conference realignment, at least for now, but could talks between the Zags and the venerable Big East Conference pick up without the Big 12's involvement? We're going to discuss the pros and cons of a move to the Big East right here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Don't go away. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. going on y'all welcome to the locked on zags podcast part of the locked on podcast network your team every day i'm your host and longtime gonzaga podcaster andy Patton, here to bring you news and updates on all things zag athletics happy friday zag nation shout out to those of you checking out the show on youtube shout out to those everyday listeners who noticed that there is a new flag in the background of the video screen here thank you to the gonzaga alumni department for sending that this way we got a fun show here today we're going to be talking Gonzaga to the Big East. That's right, folks. Before the Big 12 got involved, before the Pac-12 disintegrated, a lot of conference realignment conversations for Gonzaga involved the Big East Conference. And now that the dust has settled, now that the Pac-12 is gone, now that the Big 12 is no longer interested in Gonzaga, at least for now, that could potentially change. We're going to revisit what a Gonzaga to the Big East move would look like, the pros, the cons, how likely it is. We're also going to round out today's show with an update on a couple of former Zags, one baseball player, one basketball player who have some exciting updates in their lives that we're going to share with you. So first, I want to, before we get into the pros and cons, I want to just take a look at whether this is a super realistic option and really kind of what it might look like. So for the Big East right now, the Big East is at 11 schools. And in this entire saga of conference realignment that has taken place over really since UCLA and USC made their move to the Big Ten, you could say it's when Texas and Oklahoma moved to the SEC, regardless of when you want to kind of start the clock on this latest uh, movement of conference realignment. The Big East has not been affected. The Big East was massively affected by conference realignment back in 2013, uh, basically gutted the entire conference and they kind of rebuilt from the ground up. They were affected again in around 2020 when UConn came back into the Big East conference. That was a big move. But for the last couple of years, they have been pretty stout. There's no debate about their, their place amongst the college basketball elites. They are a premier group of college basketball programs, a like-minded group of institutions similar to Gonzaga. And they have kind of been not super privy to a lot of the moves happening because they don't have football programs. Of course, UConn is the counterexample of that and is the reason that there were any kind of rumors surrounding the Big East at all in the last couple of months because the Big 12 was considering adding UConn and Gonzaga. Again, for those of you who missed the Thursday episode of Locked On Zags, you may have missed that the Big 12 is no longer considering either UConn or Gonzaga, effectively because, as Commissioner Brett Yormark put it, they were happy with adding the four corner schools. Utah, Colorado, Arizona, Arizona State was always priority number one for the Big 12 conference. UConn and Gonzaga were priority number two. I know some people didn't like that, but that, I don't. I never felt like the Big 12 was hiding that that was their intention. And once they added the four corner schools, they said, hey, we're going to focus on the 16 schools that we have now and kind of reevaluate after we get them in, get them situated, get the financials all figured out. So that leaves UConn back in the Big East, leaves the Big East in a situation where they don't really have to do anything, which is kind of part of the equation here. Is there any compelling narrative reason for the Big East to now go out and pursue Gonzaga? 
11 is an odd number. A lot of people would imagine that being at 12 or 14 or 16 might be better, especially in, in the era right now where conferences seem to be, if you're not expanding, if you're not trying to grow, you're adapt or die. Again, I've said that multiple times using the quote from Moneyball there because it does seem to be kind of the prevailing thought right now is if you're not actively trying to grow and expand and improve your brand, expand, improve your product, improve your conference, you are running the risk of something like what happened to the Pac-12 happening or what looks like it could be happening to the ACC. And that is a huge, huge hinge in the entire Gonzaga to the Big East conversation because the ACC houses multiple programs that the Big East would not only be very interested in adding, but have had in their conference historically. Even now, most people still associate Syracuse with being a Big East school. They're not. They're in the ACC. They've been in the ACC for a decade now, but they are still, they they grew in the Big East. Jim Beheim became Jim Beheim in the Big East. They made the NCAA, they made the championship and won it all in 2003 as a member of the Big East. Like this has always happened in the Big East conference. If the ACC falls apart, which I don't think is imminent, they have a grant of rights deal through 2036. It's pretty ironclad, but Clemson and Florida State are unhappy. And if they can find their way into the Big Ten or the Big 12 or even the SEC, they're going to do that. And if that happens, could we start to see some more unraveling? Could North Carolina follow suit? What happens to Duke? Is there a situation there that needs to be resolved? Does Miami get out of there? And in that case, does the Big East start trying to poach some schools? Can they get Syracuse back? Can they get Louisville back? Can they get Boston College back? They've had Boston College as a member of the Big East historically. So has Miami. This was a a longer time ago, but it's happened. Could that be a reality for the Big East? My gut says probably not. I don't think teams are eager to get back into non-football conferences with their football schools. Their biggest asset, even for schools like Louisville and Syracuse, their biggest asset remains football. So I think they're going to try to get into a football conference. But it's an interesting dynamic where the Big East could wait, see what happens here, and see if they could maybe pick off some schools, have those schools go independent in football, uh, or even find another conference to house their football and play the rest of their sports, namely men's college basketball, in the Big East. It totally could happen. And I think it's a, a risky thing for the Big East to bet on. But if they're content staying at 11 and seeing what happens, I think that's probably a likely outcome for them. Before we get into the pros and cons as well, I do want to talk about what schools Gonzaga would face for those of you who who maybe are college basketball fans or maybe just Gonzaga fans or maybe just need a rundown of who those 11 schools in the Big East are. We can talk a little bit about Gonzaga's history with those programs and why it would be such an appealing conference to be in just from a a university standpoint, an academic similarity standpoint, and a a basketball standpoint. You got Creighton. Creighton, of course, has had some player movement between Gonzaga and Creighton. Grant Gibbs went to Creighton. Ryan Nemhart, of course, now coming to Gonzaga from Creighton. There's some rich history between those two teams playing each other in non-conference games. And in the NCAA tournament, you have Marquette, Mark Few, Shaka Smart, super high up-tempo teams. Marquette looks like a a top 10, top 5 potential team next season. Uh, Has consistently been very good in the Shaka Smart era. You have Xavier. That would renew a rivalry between Mark Few and Sean Miller. They played last year. Very exciting game in that Phil Knight Invitational. You have UConn. Don't need to say a whole lot more about UConn defending national champions, a team that Gonzaga played last year in the NCAA tournament and now has two upcoming games scheduled, one in Seattle this year and next year. They will play UConn on the road at the Madison Square Garden. 
Villanova's won a pair of recent national titles. They weren't great last year, but still a premier college basketball program. Georgetown, same situation without the recent titles. We'll see what Ed Cooley moving over to head to coach that team will do. Patrick Ewing really had that team in the dumps the last couple of years, but I suspect they're going to turn things around somewhat quickly. You have St. John. Speaking of teams that might turn things around quickly, Rick Pitino has built an entirely brand new roster for the Johnnies. Will be fun to see what they're able to do there. Butler has not been good the last couple of years, but Gonzaga and Butler do have a history. They've played each other before. They have that uh, not very fun game to remember with Roosevelt Jones and the bad pass from David Stockton, but again, some history there between those two teams. You have Providence, who is a consistent NCAA tournament team, even with them losing their coach in Ed Cooley. I suspect Kim English will come in and, and keep that program succeeding. Then you have Seton Hall and DePaul. Seton Hall has a fun new coach in Shaheen Holloway who helped lead the St. Or the, the St. Peter's Peacocks to that deep run they made a couple of years ago in the NCAA tournament. DePaul is admittedly not a great team, but they are in Chicago, and Gonzaga has a rich history of recruiting in the Chicago area, so playing a couple away games, or at least one away game per year in the Chicago area is probably not a bad thing for the Zags. And again, the bottom of the W or the, excuse me, the bottom of the Big East being DePaul and Seton Hall and Butler is, is a big upgrade from the bottom of the WCC. Well, there are plenty of pros as we laid out a few of them there and plenty of cons about a potential move for Gonzaga to the Big East. We're going to discuss what those might be after a word from today's sponsor, eBay Motors. For a championship team, it is all about making sure every single player is a perfect fit. And it's the same when it comes to your vehicle. Every part needs to fit just right. So the next time you need parts and accessories, head to eBay Motors. With eBay's guaranteed fit, you can be sure every part you need fits just right the first time around. Just add your ride to My Garage and look for the green check mark to know the part will fit or you get your money back. Because just like in sports, confidence is the name of the game when you shop on eBay Motors. And with over 122 million parts to choose from, you'll be back in the game in no time. After all, it's easy to bring home a win when the right parts are guaranteed. Get the right parts, the right fit, and the right prices on ebaymotors.com. eBay's guaranteed fit is only available to U.S. customers, eligible items only, and exclusions do apply. March Madness is right around the corner. If you want to win your office pool, you need to stay caught up with all the college basketball action with the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Every Monday, Andy Patton and Isaac Shade recap the biggest stories in college basketball, keep you up to date on the NCAA tournament bubble, and get you ready for the upcoming week of games. From the Big East to the Mountain West and everywhere in between, Andy and Isaac have college hoops covered on the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Folks, I want to thank all of you for making Locked On Zags your first listen or your first watch of the day. Shout out to those everyday listeners checking the show out on YouTube. Very much appreciated. In fact, speaking of YouTube, we are very, very close to 2,000 subscribers. Would love to get there before the college basketball season. Would love to get there before September. If you are listening to the show and you have not done so yet, just go to YouTube.com, search Locked on Zags and hit that big subscribe button. We got more fantastic stuff coming your way later this, or excuse me, next week, as we're going to continue to look at conference realignment, continue to look at Gonzaga's roster next year. More updates on Luka Krajnovic, on Marcus Adams Jr., June Sakyo, everybody else coming in to Gonzaga's roster for next season. 
But for now, folks, I want to do a pros and cons list about a move for Gonzaga to the Big East. And we laid out in the first segment there that we're not sure the Big East is shopping right now. They may be waiting to see what's going on in the ACC. They may be content sitting at 11 right now, but there has been at least some rumors, some conversations that have been had between Gonzaga and the Big East in the past. And were those two pick up? I think we would want to take a look at what would this mean for Gonzaga on a positive level and maybe on a not so positive level. So the pros for Gonzaga are pretty obvious. First of all, the league is aligned with the university in many ways. And again, I've said this on the show a handful of times, and I borrowed this quote from my friend and locked on Pac-12 and locked on Ducks host Spencer McLaughlin, who says, university presidents vote on realignment. He said he wants that on his tombstone because he said it so many times throughout the last year hosting locked on Pac-12. And it's true and it's important because the universities in the Big East would have to, their presidents of those schools, Georgetown president, Villanova president, Butler, Xavier, Marquette, et cetera, would have to vote on accepting Gonzaga. Gonzaga fits from an academic institution perspective, from a Catholic institution perspective, from a non-football school perspective, from a premier basketball program perspective, like the the connection between what Gonzaga, just the profile of Gonzaga as an institution compared to the schools already in the Big East, they're very similar in many ways. So I think that that is really helpful and important point to acknowledge. It's not just, oh, Gonzaga is a good basketball team. These schools have good basketball teams. Let's put them together. It's more than that. And I think that that is a really important part of this, especially when you look at how the Pac-12, which shot themselves in the foot because of this, but they refused to accept schools that didn't match them institutionally. It is something that matters to conference realignment, to folks making the decisions in conference realignment. For better or worse, as we said with the Pac-12, their indecision or inability to, to be, they were so rigid on that that it cost them. But I still think the Big East is probably going to at least that's going to matter to them to some degree, and Gonzaga fits that bill. Beyond that, for Gonzaga, it's an electric college basketball conference. We laid out the teams already for you, but man, I mean, it's unbelievable how good this conference is top to bottom. There are a few bad teams at the bottom. Butler hasn't looked great the last couple of years. DePaul is a, is a pretty rough program in terms of power six level programs, but they're light years ahead of Pacific and some of those other teams in the bottom of the WCC. So it would be a, a much, much improved men's basketball conference for Gonzaga to play. It would improve their strength of schedule tremendously. It would help them even in the non-conference. Not that they struggle there, but you'd get that automatic Big East, Big 12 matchup every single year. Like they would be having the ability to schedule even more challenging games. It would improve their reputation. It would improve their reach. It would improve their brand recognition and awareness. It would also quiet the haters. Again, Gonzaga is not going to go out and go 37-1 and one in the Big East. It's just not going to happen. But people who think that they'd be 500 in any other conference besides the WCC, which those people have been wrong for years, years and years, they've been wrong about that. And they're still adamantly wrong about it as often as they can be. But those people would have to reckon with the fact that Gonzaga in their best years is going to be a six-loss team in the Big East. And they're still going to be a one-seed or a two-seed. Like, they're still going to be able to do that. There's some questions on how viable long-term Gonzaga's success would be. But a move to the Big East would help ensure that by putting them in a conference that can be more competitive recruiting, that puts them in more uh, different cities, different areas, different basketball powerhouses like Chicago, uh, like Wisconsin, like the East Coast, of course, New York, Washington, D.C., etc. So it would really help them there. Beyond that, assuming that this move would be made for all sports, that's a huge benefit for Gonzaga as well. Their women's basketball team goes from being in a bad WCC, and it's bad. 
BYU being out the door, UP losing all their talent. This is a bad women's basketball conference. Now they go to the, the, the Big East where they play UConn. Are you kidding me? That's an incredible growth for the women's basketball program. We get a chance to play UConn multiple times a year. Incredible. Beyond that, Marquette has been fantastic. Gonzaga and Marquette met very recently. That was a ranked team that they played at the time. There are many other very solid women's basketball programs in the Big East. Maddie Seacrest was one of the most prolific scorers in women's basketball history. She just graduated from Villanova last year. So that would be a huge glow, glow up for them. The baseball in the Big East is very good. It's also good in the WCC, so that's admittedly not as huge of an improvement, but it's an improvement soccer-wise. It's an improvement baseball-wise. Uh, it would help Gonzaga's non-revenue-generating sports as well as, of course, helping their men's basketball program. More revenue, better TV deal, conference tournament at Madison Square Garden. Lots and lots of pros here to talk about when discussing Gonzaga going to the Big East. But there are some cons as well. And really, there's kind of one con that encapsulates all of the issues with this move. And it's travel. Not a secret whatsoever what the issue is with Gonzaga being in the Big East. If Gonzaga was located on the East Coast or if there was already Western located teams in the Big East or if travel just if we could all snap our fingers and be wherever we wanted and travel was just not an issue in our country, Gonzaga would have been in the Big East a long time ago. This is the hang up. And it's a big one. Is it logical for Gonzaga's athletic programs again, assuming every sport makes the move here, to be playing in a different time zone nearly every single weekend. And by different time zone, we don't mean occasionally going to Utah to play one hour, uh, one hour difference in Provo. We mean every single weekend you are two to three hours away from time zone perspective. You are traveling from Spokane, Washington to Washington, D.C. You are traveling to Providence, Rhode Island. You are traveling to New Jersey to play Seton Hall. Like that is what would happen. And you're not making that trip all in one fell swoop. That's multiple trips to the entire other side of the country to play those teams. Yeah, you probably pair it in a way where you play St. John's and Seton Hall in one trip. And then the next trip you play Georgetown and Providence, whatever, whatever it may be. It's still a ton of travel. You're going to have sleep deprivation issues. You're going to have academic issues. You're going to have potentially decrease in basketball performance. Like this is the worst case scenario, and I'm not necessarily confident that it will happen, but there have been studies, at least in the NFL, the Seattle Seahawks, for example, they're going to struggle when they play early morning games when they have to travel across the country because you, you miss sleep, your body doesn't adjust to the time difference, it's hard. Basketball games aren't played at 10 a.m. on the East Coast very often, so it's not as big of a deal, but it's going to impact the players. And you look at it from other sports too. I mean, it's going to be logistically traveling a baseball team this often is a nightmare. I mean, it's a nightmare. There's no other way to put it. Would the baseball staff be willing to do this? They may not have a choice. I think they would be happy with being in a conference that's a bit more recognized. Again, the difference between the WCC and the Big East in baseball is smaller than it is in men's basketball. And the travel is much more complex. For baseball, if you travel all the way across the country, you play a three-game series at Seton Hall, and then you come back to host Washington in a Tuesday game, that's really tough to do. So there are some logistical nightmares for some of the other teams. Uh, there are some there's some challenges with potentially having issues with players being fully ready to play because of all the travel. I know there's academic concerns as well, how much more class they would miss. Uh, and then there's the financial aspect of this because 
The Big East is certainly going to pay Gonzaga more money every single year than the WCC. Even with the WCC's concessions that allow Gonzaga to make more money off of their NCAA tournament appearances and everything else that the Big East, or excuse me, the WCC has offered Gonzaga, at the end of the day, the Big East is going to be more millions of dollars per year going into Gonzaga's pockets. No debate about that. But how much will that money offset the additional cost of traveling? My guess is that it will, because otherwise Gonzaga just wouldn't entertain it at all. They're like, okay, this is going to actually cost us money. No thanks. Done. Conversation over. But how? by how much? Because if they're making, you know, let's say $8 million more, $12 million more, $16 million more, but you've got to cut that in half because of how much more it costs them to travel and you have more pissed off coaches, you have more frustrated players, you have more players traveling because they don't want to commute across the country uh, in, in your non-basketball sports here, most likely, I think men's basketball and even women's basketball probably wouldn't have that big of an issue. But if the rest of your athletic department is, is struggling because of this and you're only making a little bit more money, that's probably not a move you're going to make. That's probably not a decision that's going to be worth it long run for Gonzaga. So those are the questions that need to be answered. Beyond that, you also lose regional rivalries. Losing the same areas rivalry sucks. Lesser extent, losing the Portland rivalry, the Santa Clara rivalry, San Francisco rivalry. Those aren't really rivalries, but the main thing you lose there is you lose the ability for local area Zags to see their team. For anybody who's been to a Gonzaga-Portland game in Portland, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you, losing that is a bummer. Yeah, maybe they'll play some non-conference games with those teams, but probably not. I don't think Gonzaga is going to go out of their way to schedule Portland if they're in the Big East. They might schedule Oregon if they can, but they haven't done that in a really long time, right? So I don't know. Maybe they get some Bay Area games in there somehow. But for the most part, the Zags who live in those areas, there's a lot more Zags who live in those areas than who live in D.C. and Milwaukee, where Marquette is. There are Zags who live in those places. I don't want to dismiss those people because I know that they are thrilled at the idea of potentially getting to see Gonzaga in their home state or home area. That would be incredible. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of people would lose the opportunity to see the Zags. And while I don't think that that's going to be at the forefront of Gonzaga's mind, it is something for them to consider. Well, we're going to close out the show and the week today with discussion on former Zag walk-on Matthew Lang signing a professional contract overseas, as well as former Zag outfielder Troy Johnston's monster season in the minor leagues, all coming up right after this. Folks, still Andy Patton here, still locked on Zag, still closing out the week here in mid-August on the show talking about a pair of former Gonzaga players and some updates on them because there's been so much with conference realignment and various other topics and, and new players being joined joining the roster in August we haven't gotten to do as many just like you know look back at former players and how they're doing and, and I, I like these kind of content and so I'm glad I got a chance to kind of find some ways to pigeonhole that into some of these conversations today we're talking about former Zag walk-on Matthew Lang as well as former Zag outfielder Troy Johnston to close out the show we'll start with Lang Matthew Lang, of course, spent four years at Gonzaga before walking on to or joining the Arizona team as a grad transfer. He has signed a professional contract overseas with KB Istogu. This is a team located in the country of Kosovo, which is a small Baltic country located near Serbia and Macedonia and kind of in that Eastern European Baltic area. Kosovo has their own basketball league in this country, and KB Istogu is one of the teams in that league. Matthew Lang is, by my memory, the first walk-on. And I mean walk-on in the sense of like 
only played late game situations. Crowd was chanting their name, came in mostly to hit that taco three-pointer. Like, yes, David Stockton was a walk-on. Mike Hart was a walk-on. Jeremy Jones was a walk-on. Uh, you know, you go back farther, farther. There's other walk-ons on these teams as well. Pendergraft, who actually played legitimate minutes. And those guys then end up playing professional basketball. David Stockton, of course, has been a professional basketball player for many years. Jeremy Jones is still a professional basketball player, et cetera. But in terms of a walk-on who just was a walk-on, who was that end of the bench guy, bench mob, you know, cheering on the team, getting that last minute playing time. This is the first one I can remember actually signing a professional contract. If you can remember somebody else, please let me know. But that's an incredible accomplishment for Maddie Lang. Lang, again, four years at Gonzaga, appeared in 55 games. He scored 40 total points, 21 boards, shot 34.5% from deep. He was 9 of 26 in his Gonzaga career. He then transferred to Arizona. Another unique thing you don't see happen all that often, a walk-on player transfer, but he had another year of eligibility uh, as a using that COVID year, goes to Arizona to play for Tommy Lloyd, uh, gets a chance to kind of see another basketball program. Uh, he played eight games, 15 minutes, scored 11 points for the Wildcats last year. And now he's signing a professional contract. Again, a lower level professional basketball league in Europe. Still, Matthew Lang's dream of playing professional basketball is coming true. He is getting to do that for a Jesuit high school player in Oregon to walk on to Gonzaga and not really play a whole ton, but now get that opportunity. Really, really excited for him. I think this is really cool, and I hope we continue to see stuff like this. And I love being able to give you guys updates on where former Zags are going because it used to be that, oh, like, you know, maybe one Zag a year will make the NBA, maybe two or three will play in Europe, but now just about everybody. Just about everybody who puts on a Gonzaga basketball uniform, should they choose to, is going to find an opportunity to play professional basketball in some capacity, again, if that's what they want to do. Now closing out the show, talking about Troy Johnston. Troy Johnston was an outfielder for Gonzaga for a couple of years. Very, very prof- uh, talented player. Blossomed in that 2019 season for Gonzaga. I think he hit like 340 with a 415 on-base percentage. Ended up getting drafted in the 17th round out of Gonzaga in the 2019 MLB draft. That's right before they shortened the draft. The draft is still 20 rounds, so technically he would have gotten selected even before that happened. Uh, played. There was no season in 2020, but he played well in 2021, played well in 2022, and now in 2023, he has blossomed into a legitimate star. The Miami Marlins just released their top 30 prospect list. He is 23rd. For a 26-year-old 17th round pick, To be one of the organization's 25 best minor league players is a tremendous accomplishment. And it is completely deserved based on the way Johnston has been playing for Miami's AA affiliate this year. In 83 games in AA with Miami, Trey Johnston has 18 home runs, 83 RBIs, 16 steals. He's hitting 296 with a 396 on base percentage and a 567 slugging. That is elite levels of production. He then finally, it took way too long, but he finally got called up to AAA, the second, the highest level of minor league baseball before you hit the major leagues in 20 games at AAA. Johnston hasn't slowed down even a little bit. He is hitting 374 with a 441 on base percentage. That means he's getting on base just under half the time, which is obscene. In, ba- in baseball at any level, that is really, really good for him to be able to do that. Four home runs, 19 RBIs, and two steals. So the 19 RBIs plus the 83 RBIs from AA means that he has 102 RBIs on the season. RBIs are runs batted in for those who are not baseball fans. Troy Johnson is the first minor leaguer 
in the entire of all of the minor leagues, which is an, an incredible amount. Every major league baseball team, there's 32 baseball teams. All of them, or excuse me, 30 baseball teams. All of them have four minor league teams. So there are 120 teams. Teams have 25 players. Start to do the math there. That's a whole heck of a lot of players in minor league baseball. Troy Johnson was the very first one to get to 100 RBIs in the season. One of the most productive minor leaguers in all of minor league baseball this season. Now, Johnson is 26 years old. Like I said, he plays first base. He plays some left field. Um, he should get a big league opportunity soon. I think a lot of people who kind of scout baseball, who are looking at him as kind of this pop-up prospect who was not really well-known until this year are thinking, okay, 26-year-olds are kind of expected to dominate the minor leagues. He's older than most of the competition around him. And that is true to an extent. But to see him do this, to see a 17th round pick, most guys, most 17th round picks who are 26 years old are either out of baseball entirely or are not producing like this. So for him to be doing this is a tremendous accomplishment, even if, yeah, the age caveat kind of exists for him a little bit. Beyond that, I think Johnson is going to get an MLB opportunity, whether it's this year, whether it's next year, it's a little bit hard to say, but if he does, he'd become a bit of a rarity in the sense that Gonzaga has done a really good job of producing pitching talent to go into the major leagues. You have Marco Gonzalez for the Seattle Mariners. You have Wyatt Mills, who's bounced around between the Boston Red Sox and Kansas City Royals. You have Eli Morgan, who's pitching at an all-star caliber level for the Cleveland Guardians. You've had a handful of other guys, Casey Legamina pitched for the Cincinnati Reds this year. That is where Gonzaga's success has been. And Gabriel Hughes was the 10th overall pick in the MLB draft last year. They've had a handful of other guys. Uh, Tristan Vreeling was a high draft pick. William Kempner was a high draft pick. They're all pitchers. Pitchers are who is coming out of Gonzaga and having success at the big league level. Johnston could be a rarity in the sense that he could be a hitter who makes the major leagues. Something we haven't seen very often. Taylor Jones, who was a former pitcher converted into a hitter, did make the major leagues with the Houston Astros back in 2020, has been still kind of at that AAA level for the last couple of years, hasn't really gotten many more opportunities. But that's kind of it for a while for Gonzaga. They haven't had a lot of hitting success. Brett Harris is in the Oakland A's system. He's a, I think he was a seventh round pick, third baseman, very talented young man, may get an opportunity to play in the big leagues here before too long, but we haven't seen a lot of hitters really have that kind of success coming out of Gonzaga. So Johnston could be a guy who kind of helps buck that trend a little bit and helps prove that Gonzaga isn't just a pitching factory. They can develop hitters as well. Uh, and hopefully he gets a chance to be in the big leagues again, if not before the end of this season, definitely in 2024. Folks, that's going to wrap us up for today here on the Locked On Zags podcast. I want to thank all of you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Shout out to those everyday listeners. Shout out to those of you checking out the show on YouTube. Go hit that subscribe button if you have not done so yet. It is very much appreciated. We'll be back next week with more fantastic content here on Locked On Zags. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, as always, go Zags.